you can hear the pitch change as the bay doors open. It gets a deeper pitch. And so the bay doors open and we knew they were gonna bomb us. And we jumped in the hole. Three grown men were laying on top of each other as this airplane's getting ready to drop. And I just remember, I only had time to just say a quick prayer. And I said, God, if you still have purpose for me, let me live through this. Welcome back to another episode of On the Ground with Samaritan's Purse, where we take you to the front lines and behind the scenes of our work around the world. I'm your host, Christy Graham, and that was Ryan Boyette describing living through the war in Sudan. Ryan first started working with Samaritan's Purse in 2003. He had read an article in the news that pricked his heart for the people of Sudan, and reading this article changed the trajectory of his entire life. For years, he has lived and served in the Numa Mountains. He met his wife there, and he now lives in this remote corner of the world with his family. He and his wife eventually founded their own organization called Two Move Mountains, and they continue to live and work in Sudan, and Samaritan's Purse partners with them to reach more people in need. It's an incredible story, and I know you'll love getting to hear it. I just graduated university at the University of South Florida, and I read an article about Sudan, and my sister had sent me that article. And I was actually going to be an FBI agent or a U.S. Customs agent, kind of following my father's footsteps. But then as I started reading about this war in Sudan, I felt God calling me greatly to Sudan because I read about the many, many years of, uh, of war, and then I read about the persecution of, of the church there, and I thought, why is no one doing anything about this? And I just felt God kind of saying, that's why I'm calling you to do something. As Ryan researched ways to get to Sudan, a friend told him about Samaritan's Purse. And even though he had a job waiting for him with U.S. Customs, he felt compelled to pursue a role in Sudan. As he was waiting and praying about the opportunity to work with Samaritan's Purse, he asked God to give him an answer. And hours later, his phone rang. He said, uh, Ryan, when can you leave? And I said, uh, I'll leave tomorrow if you want me to. And so within four days of that phone call, uh, I was on the DC-3 airplane and landing in the Nuba Mountains. And that was, on, that was in April uh, 2003. And then when that plane landed, my life changed from that moment. Wow. I I love, I mean, I love this podcast because we get to take people around the world, you know, talking to beneficiaries, our staff. But personally, I like hearing the hearts of our staff and especially those that are willing to go to the ends of the earth and, and on a moment's notice. But I love the way that God sparked your heart for a people group you didn't know much of, but just the way you were so obedient, you know, and, and followed up on it. Tell us about the Nuba Mountains. Uh, what were your first impressions of that region of the world? Sure. So I would say, Christy, that my spiritual journey ha- a lot has been like, if God calls me, I'm like, yes, you know, I'm ready to go. But then when I jump in it, I get a little nervous yeah. and, you know, that that fear gets in there a little bit. Um, so, you know, when we landed in Nuba was a perfect example of that. Um, so the plane lands and I'm I'm excited. And the the red dust from the runway is kind of kicking up behind us. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, I'm, I'm going to meet the team here. I'm about to step off this plane. And the doors swing open of the DC-3. And it's 115 degrees. And the, and the heat hits my face. And I'm from Florida, so I'm used to heat. Mm-hmm. But man, that heat hit me. And I thought, oh, no, what did I get myself into? Mm-hmm. But um, the minute I started getting involved in the communities in Nuba, um, I, I just fell in love with the people in the place. I saw the place is so beautiful. You're such an, you're in God's creation that there's nothing around. There's no infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Everything is made out of what's from the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people in the church there, while 
the Christians in the Nuba Mountains are the minority. They're about 30% Christian and 70% Muslim. Their faith is extremely strong. Um, the early missionaries did an amazing job just instilling um, the stories of the Bible. Um, and, and so many of the Christians that were there um, had that strong faith. And I think that's because of the suffering of decades of war. But besides the religious uh, differences in Sudan, it's it's about uh, the size of Massachusetts, I would say. And it's um, it's mountainous, um, extremely re- remote, no running water, no electricity. Um, everyone farms for the food they have. But I think something that has made it um, so remote is because of the war. They've just been cut off from the rest of the world. Um, there were no places for Nuba people to run as refugees. They were right in the center of Sudan when Sudan was one country. Um, so they had, they knew what it was to rely on God. They knew what it was to to pray to Him and, and very directly see Him answer those prayers and, and protect them in the midst of that conflict. As Ryan said, their faith was strong. In the midst of persecution and war, faithful believers continued to pray and seek God. This area of Sudan was completely cut off from the rest of the world as a result of the war, and families were suffering. They didn't even have access to food or other critical resources. So Samaritans first came in and um, provided food, and then they helped with uh, farming. And this is something very unique about the Nuba people. They actually asked um, that they didn't want food dropped from the air only. They wanted um, support to help their farming be better so that they could produce food for themselves. Um, So Samaritans first did that. The agriculture programs were flourishing, but we didn't want to just provide food. We wanted to make an impact for the gospel. Franklin Graham made a commitment to build back every single church that was destroyed in the war, and he wanted to train pastors to continue the work of those who were martyred. More than 500 churches were rebuilt through this program, and many pastors were trained. And those churches are still standing today, um, and they're being used um, as places of worship, as places to teach language, to read the Bible, to sing songs. Um, yeah, it's, it was a great project. Hmm. Can't imagine, yeah, your church is being bombed, watching people in your church be killed. Um, I mean, so much destruction, and but yet there was resilience in the people, and they mm-hmm. realized church isn't a building, you know, it's a relationship. And so tell me, what what did you learn from these pastors and, and even the congregation that wanted to rebuild and weren't afraid to to worship again. I like that question because it reminds me of uh, when we'd go and have these meetings at the church, which was the people, like you said, and and we said we want to rebuild this building, and it really became the unification of the believers. Seeing the people come together mm. and collecting rock and gravel and sand and putting their hands together with us and rebuilding uh, the church building really unified the body and it brought so many people together that weren't believers either mm-hmm. like you would see people that that were so excited about this project now coming to church and also uh, being a part of it mm-hmm. um so that was one great thing i learned but one thing one story i want to tell you christy is uh you know we there was one guy that um he's a man that i will never forget during this uh, church building project an amazing man his name's kamal and he lives in a village called el nugra and I went there first and I did some research about, you know, was this church destroyed during the war? And they said, oh, you have to meet with Elder Kamal. So I went to Elder Kamal's house, which is pretty common for me to do when I was doing research. And I saw his wife and I said, is Kamal here? And she said, yeah, why don't you have a seat? And so I'm sitting there and I hear Kamal kind of in his room getting ready, but he's taking longer than what I had assumed, you know, he would immediately come out. 
But then he emerged from the 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 mud hut and he was actually dragging himself on the ground. Hmm. And um, you could tell he was crippled on his hands and his feet. And he had a, a white, what we call jalabiyah. It's almost like what Muslims wear, but everyone in Nuba wears them, whether they're Muslims or Christian. And so he drug himself out, but he had a big smile on his face. Um, and he climbed up in the local bed next to me and we greeted. And I asked him, I said, Kamal, um, I would like to hear the story of, of this church. And so he began to tell his story because his story is very much related to it. And his eyes started watering up as he, to- as he started telling it. So what he said was during the war, what would happen is the government soldiers would come into the village as they went into his village and they would search out the elders and pastors of the church. And he was um, identified by the, the government soldiers and they grabbed him and they grabbed his um, his friend who was also an elder in the church. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they put out a hot, uh, a piece of metal in the 115 degree sun and they stripped Kamal naked and they laid him on that, on that metal. And his friend died that day. Um, Kamal, um, through God's grace, lived, and his family got to take him back home. Mm. And so when he came home, he he couldn't walk from that day forward. And that had been uh, 25 years prior. So for 25 years, Kamal was a strong man. You could tell he was just a strong guy. Mm. But now he was crippled for his whole life. Um, and I just I asked Kamal, and I said, Kamal, what would you say to the men that did this to you? And he just looked at me and he said, uh, Ryan, I'd I'd forgive them Mm. because these men don't know Christ. So they don't know the evil that they do. Mm. Um, And, you know, I I feel like in Sunday school growing up, that's the answer I might have said, you know, but to to do it, I hope that I have Mm. that kind of grace and faith Mm. um, that that Kamal had. Um, But the story, Chrissy, doesn't end there because as Samaritan's Purse, we tried to see if there could be help for for Kamal, and we brought we took Kamal out of Nuba. We brought him to Kenya and put him in a hospital that I believe Samaritan's Purse supports there too. And he was there for three months, and he did physical therapy. And then after three months, he came back, and I got to drive him to his village. And I can't even I can't even explain the the feeling in the village because. Their house is kind of speckled up the mountain, and we're kind of in the valley mm-hmm. where the church is. And as we were driving into the village, people were just coming down the mountain. You could see women dressed in colorful um, wraps and men running down and just trying to get down to the church as fast as they can because they had heard Kamal had come back. Wow. And they opened the door. And for the first time in 25 years, Kamal put his foot down on the soil of his homeland, and he walked for the first time into his church in 25 years. Wow. Um, and that was only three months of physical therapy. I, I believe it, it was definitely a miracle that day. Mm-hmm. Um, people in Nuba don't cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, str- they're just hard people. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I'd ever seen everyone. Uh, there wasn't a dry eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, men, women, children were all crying with joy uh, seeing Kamal walk into that church. It was amazing. Um, and so I was just became one of the community. And uh, 2011, uh, my wife and I were were married. I met her in the New Mountains. Uh, she was a member of of a church that I was doing work with, um, and I was quite taken with her. And so uh, she was a translator for my mother when she came. And um, then I decided it would be good I would have a translator, even though <laughs> I knew most of the language. 
Um, so we were actually married. We knew each other for quite a number of years. And then um, we were married in uh, February 2011. So... I was still continuing to work with Samaritan's Purse. At that time, I had I was in charge of all the programs there. We had over 250 um, national employees, wow. um, which was amazing, doing unbelievable work. We had um, over 15 um, expatriate staff from America and Canada, and the work was going really well. But then we started seeing signs of the war coming back, and we were seeing soldiers that we had never seen before, government soldiers moving in new areas. And then on June 6th, um, 2011, just a few months after Jazeera and I were married, um, the war started immediately. Uh, the bombs started falling. We could hear uh, gunfire. And uh, Samaritan's Purse made the decision to evacuate everyone and try to um, put the assets in, in safe places. And we did that, except I did call Samaritan's Purse. Um, and, I, and I told them, I feel at this moment um, we need to stay. Uh, so my family and I resigned from from our position and decided to stay in the Nuba Mountains. And uh, it was a very tough decision. Uh, my wife had lived through war her entire life, um, but I hadn't. I hadn't experienced war. And I've heard all the stories of the war. I've seen um, the results of war. And now after this window of peace, um, we are going to be living in it only a few months married. Mm-hmm. And I really relied on Jazeera to teach me how, what to be aware of. You know what? It, it were things that I I wasn't um, so keen on. Like I didn't I didn't know like where the planes were coming when um, they're far away flying into bomb. And she would she would help me understand that. Um, but at the same time, watching the people and their resilience mm-hmm. within that conflict was also um, something that helped me grow. That even though I would get worried, you know, of of these bombings, people were resilient and strong. And uh, it encouraged me to be the same. Mm. I cannot. I can't imagine having to make that choice. And there's no. There's no peace either way. Because if yeah. they if they flee and they're physically safe, they have loved ones back. You know that they long for and they ache for and worry about. Um, and if you stay, then you're faced with hardship and trials. And so th- there's really and in, in your situation, there wasn't there wasn't a good choice. You know, there's there's a God choice, and I feel like God made it very clear. And um, Mm -hmm. your heart, you stayed with your people. Um, But as you mentioned, it's it's not easy. I can't imagine living through bombs, and I'm sure food food got more scarce. um, Everything got more scarce in that remote area. So I guess what did God teach you about your faith and and relying on Him? Because you you already had relied on Him and trusted Him in hard times, but now you were being challenged and tested even more. Um, You know, I mentioned earlier how I— you know, I have these moments of strength and then I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, what did I just, mm-hmm. what's the decision I just made? And it was kind of another one of those. I feel like I made the bold choice and right choice. But then mm-hmm. just the next day after I made that choice, um, an airplane came in, a jet, and it was rainy season. So you could, I could hear the thunder rolling to the north of me. And as the plane came in, they dropped two 500-pound bombs and it just shook the earth. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, again, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. This is this is so stupid. Like I started to have that doubt a little bit, and I prayed, and I, I was like, God, please, please help me. Like know that this is the right decision. And I went to bed that night, and I couldn't really sleep. But then we started hearing um, that all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, there was like not even rain yet, but this lightning just crashed so hard, 
And I woke up thinking it was a bomb, but it was rain. And the and the lightning had, had just hit near our house. And I and immediately God gave me comfort and was was basically saying, I'm much stronger than any war, I'm much stronger than any bomb. Um, I called you here, don't fear. And then I was reminded of Psalm 27 mm-hmm. and that whole chapter that just talks about no fear but Christ. Um, and so who should we be afraid of? Mm-hmm. And so we would read that every day as just a reminder um, to not fear this war um, and not to fear the things that can hurt our body mm-hmm. um, and and to fear God because of his love for us and, and what he has done for us. And so that, that kept us sustained uh, throughout the war. Ryan and his wife were bold for the sake of the gospel. And as Ryan thought and prayed about how he could raise awareness, he remembered how a news article changed his life. Together with many of his Sudanese friends, Ryan and his wife started Nuba Reports, where they would report on what was happening on the front lines. We'd go to the front lines um, at least three or four days a week. Um, We would be where the bombs would be falling deep into the interior and burning uh, houses and wounding people every day. As they huddled in caves on the front lines, they gathered stories, and they shared this information broadly. Soon, major media outlets like CNN, Fox News, and the New York Times were all traveling to Nuba to report this firsthand. And there was a negative side to this information getting out. It put a target on Ryan's family. One day, while his wife was visiting their neighbor, he heard a plane coming towards their home, and he was with several reporters at the time. But sure enough, we started hearing a plane coming. And the plane was going in a direction that we had not seen before. We were so used to knowing exactly where planes were going and where they were going to bomb. And they, no one had bombed, hadn't bombed where we were at that point. So this plane came in from the north. And I told our reporters, I said, guys, I think this plane's coming to bomb us. And they said, no, there's no way. And I said, well, let's just go to a hole. I had dug a hole that was not very big. Um, and we just kind of sat there and waited. And sure enough, the plane turned around and lined up on our house. And you can hear the pitch change as the bay doors open. It gets a deeper pitch. And so the bay doors open and we knew they were going to bomb us. And we jumped in the hole. Three grown men were laying on top of each other as this airplane's getting ready to drop. And I'd been by many bombings, Christy, and, and you know, in movies, it's like, you know, but for some reason, this one just sounds like these bombs are just tumbling through the air. And I just remember, I only had time to just say a quick prayer. And I said, God, if you still have purpose for me, let me live through this. And the first bomb hit. Oh, my ears were ringing and the shrapnel flew over our, over our heads because we were in this hole and some of it went into the roof of my house. And then the second bomb was on a hill and the shrapnel shot up over. And then the third bomb landed near where my wife was. And they didn't have a hole at their house, but she was behind a big granite rock. Mm. And as she was laying down, the third bomb hit very close to her and she was seven months pregnant with our son. And the bomb hit and the shrapnel came and ricocheted off the rock. Um, she would have died if that rock wasn't there. Hmm. Um, and so God, God rescued us that day. And Jazeera and I ran to each other and, and ran into a cave in case the plane came back. And, uh, and, and God saved us definitely that day. Hmm. Um, our son was born two months later and we named him Eben, uh, short for Ebenezer, hmm. uh, Rock of Help. Because, uh, yeah, God definitely put the rock there that day. Wow. I cannot imagine what was going through both your minds, being separated, you know, not knowing what was yeah. happening and not knowing if they're okay. Um, yeah, I can't imagine what God taught you. And and as you mentioned, He has a plan and a purpose for you, and He still has work for Amen. both of you to do. And, yeah. you know, I just thought of, you know, Joseph in Genesis, you know, when he told his brothers, you know, 
you know, what you what man meant for evil, God meant for good, you know, for, mm-hmm. for, for the work of his people. And now, yep. you know, you guys have been saved. So God has saved you, sealed you. He has a plan. He still has work for you guys to accomplish. So talk mm-hmm. to me about what you're currently doing and what God's led you to share the gospel through education. Sure. So as I would be interviewing people in these caves, mm-hmm. um, and I'd always ask them, what's your greatest need? And I'm thinking they're going to say food or water or safety. Yeah. And they say nine times out of 10, Christy, they'd say education. Wow. And they would say, Ryan, we know what it's like to live in war. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to keep knowing that. And our children are going to keep knowing that unless we get out of this this conflict and they see education as a way out of that oppression. And I thought, I thought it was a beautiful connection, the intersection between education and knowing Christ and how they see education as freedom Hmm. where understanding and having wisdom and knowledge in Christ and developing relationship with Christ ultimately leads to salvation and freedom from sin. And I love that connection and intersection of those mm-hmm. two things, of those two worlds. So um, my wife and I decided to move back to the States in 2018 because the war had kind of slowed down. There was no ongoing fighting. Um, the two sides up to now are still looking at each other, but they're not fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no war, no peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still a dire situation, but there's still hope. Mm-hmm. So we started an organization called To Move Mountains. So Our goal is to provide quality education to children in conflict. And of course, our first area uh, where we're working is the Nuba Mountains. And so we're working with the community, not just to make um, one school, but to help the people create an entirely new education system that meet their needs. Mm -hmm. They need something um, that is going to really meet their very specific needs and face the things and questions that they have because of what they faced. And so we are writing a curriculum with them. We have been training teachers and we just started our first model school where other teachers will come and learn how we are using those methods in uh, kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, And we have 614 kids in the school um, and we're constructing, we're we're holding classes right now uh, under uh, trees and in locally made buildings um, with our newly trained teachers while we construct the, the first school. I was convicted that this was their first ask. Education and freedom is something that we take for granted, but it was their greatest desire. And now they're developing a new curriculum and doing this with the input and the voice of the Nuba people. And so um, the first thing we did is we called people from all over Nuba, parents, teachers, students, community leaders, women's groups, youth groups uh, from all different tribes in Nuba and brought them to one location. And we asked them three major questions. These are big picture things. What do you want your children to know, to be able to do, and to be like? So what is the knowledge, skills, and values that you want your children to have by the time they finish eighth grade? And so from there, we just took that big picture and just built this system out, and we're constantly getting the voice of the people. And I think that also just built this amazing trust among the people um, for us to be able to, to do this important work. How incredible. That is so neat. Um, so can you tell how Samaritan's Purse is involved? And it's it's a joy to partner uh, mm-hmm. with you and, and this new vision. So uh, Samaritan's Purse has been wonderful. Um, so once we started this work, my, my relationship with Samaritan's Purse, even when we stayed during the war, has been always so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I explained uh, the, the education work we wanted to do, um, there was a lot of excitement. 
And Samaritan's Purse has been supporting us in making curriculum. They've been supporting us in um, uh, training our teachers that we've been, we've trained 25 teachers that we've invested in and discipled. Mm -hmm. And these are our first teachers in the first school. Um, And we're going to continue that teacher training. And so when I told them that we wanted to build and construct our first school, I went to them and I said, can you please help with that? And um, they gave a very large percentage of the funds to to build our first school. Um, But at the same time, Samaritan's Purse is going to build 15 other schools in the Nuba Mountains. Mm -hmm. And they asked if we would be training and put teachers into those schools that have gone through our teacher training, um, which which was an incredible thing for us, you know far exceeding what I had imagined God was going to do. Um, and I love that Samaritan's Purse has the infrastructure on the ground. They can they can do this work. They can build these schools. And we have uh, the staff who uh, can invest in future teachers to be in these schools. It's so incredible. And I just love this. Yeah, long-term partnership for the gospel. And, and I always love the, hearing these stories. I just love the collaboration of the body of Christ. From what you said, um, you know, we're all the body. And I love that we're part, you know, we kind of say it's partnering, but you know, we're just all part of the body. Yeah. And I love that Samaritan's Purse um, can do things that we can't, and then we can be there full time and do things that they might not be able to do because of uh, being there full time or something like that. And I think that it's just beautiful how how we are the church and that's Mm -hmm. that's the body of Christ. And I I love that so much. This conversation was so life-giving. I was challenged and encouraged, and I hope you were as too, as you got to hear his heart. I asked Ryan how we could pray for he and his family as they've been in the U.S. getting education in order to do this work really well. They're going back to the Nuba Mountains this month, so he asked for prayer in the transition. I hope you'll partner with us in praying for this family and the project that will completely change the trajectory of life for each student who's impacted. And if you enjoyed hearing this conversation, I ask you to share it with people. And another way you can share this is by leaving a review. Just posting a short review or a comment about what you loved about the episode will truly help more people find it online and hear this episode. Thank you so much for listening today and thank you for your prayers. God bless you.